Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. Today's episode comes out just before the 2020 election, where millions of people will cast their vote for the presidency, Senate, and more. 100 years ago, women were not guaranteed the right to vote nationally. That didn't happen until 1920 with the passage of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. This year is the centennial of the amendment. But some Arizona women gained the right to vote before 1920. How did they do that? Producer Maritza Dominguez is here to give us the history of women's suffrage in Arizona. Nationally, the women's suffrage movement officially began at the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. That's when women gathered to fight for equal rights. It featured prominent suffragists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who felt women deserved the same representation in government as men. The fight for women's suffrage would be tough, it would take decades, and it would draw out fierce opposition. The anti-suffrage arguments were that women are different. Um, They belong in the home. If we give them the vote, we're going to expose their minds to corrupt politics and, oh dear, that will destroy the family and the home. This is Melanie Sturgeon. She was the state archivist for 16 years and is now the president of Arizona Women's History Alliance. In Arizona, the women's suffrage movement arrived in earnest in the 1890s when Arizona was still a territory. In that era, prohibition was a top concern for women. I spoke with Heidi Ossalier, a historian of women in politics, especially of Arizona women. She also wrote the book, Winning Their Place, which chronicles the history of Arizona women in politics. So those social problems translated into, well, what can we do about it? And there wasn't much women could do because every time they asked to close down the bars or at least not have drunken brawls on Sundays in the saloons, they would be told, well, we don't care what you think. You don't have the vote. Josephine Brawley Hughes was the president of Arizona Women's Christian Temperance Union. After being dismissed by the legislature, she realized the only way to have power in government would be through the vote. Hughes later left the organization to become more involved in the suffrage movement she enlisted the help of national organizations like the National American Women's Suffrage Association. The national organization began focusing on acquiring suffrage through states instead of passing it as an amendment. Josephine Brawley Hughes went before the 1891 Constitutional Convention and asked them to put women's suffrage into the the Constitution. The Territorial Convention failed. Territorial conventions had to be approved by Congress but this one wasn't. The suffrage measure was defeated, and the Territorial Convention failed to get the attention from Congress. Undeterred, the women pushed on. Hughes's husband owned a Tucson newspaper at that time. She used that platform to get her word out. But when she was working with the legislature, she was always very polite. It was kind of, um, this is important. We'd like to, I'd like you to introduce this bill, but there wasn't a lot of behind-the-scenes Lobbying of legislators, in fact, that wasn't considered very ladylike, so um, the bills were defeated. Eventually, Hughes stepped down 
and the national organization sent a representative in search for new, younger leadership. They found it in Francis Willard Munns, who would be an important person throughout the suffrage movement in Arizona. And Frances Willard Munns was the secretary of this organization, and she and Pauline O'Neill and um, a representative from the national organization, again, went all throughout the territory. They organized suffrage clubs. They spoke at meetings. They went to outdoor rallies. And under their leadership, they really started to have an aggressive campaign to give Arizona women the right to vote. Munns and O'Neill had a new way of dealing with the state legislature. Instead of beating around the bush and staying nonpartisan, like how the national organization wanted them to act, they got down in the dirt. Again, here's Heidi. But Frances Munns and Pauline O'Neill knew that if they didn't play a little bit of partisan politics and get their, um, roll up their sleeves and do some hard work, they weren't going to get the legislature to budge. Munns had suffrage instilled in her from a young age. Her mother was a staunch believer in the movement. Heidi spoke with Munns' grandson in the 1990s. Here's how she said he described her. He told me she was a redhead and she had a fiery personality. She did not hesitate to tell you what she thought. Heidi said that the personality of an Arizona woman differed from those from the East Coast. Many of these women worked outside the home, as a teacher or a seamstress, and a lot of them grew up on ranches or in farming families. She was always laughing. She was a fun, boisterous, outgoing gal. She grew up on a ranch riding horses. It set the women apart and made the difference in their approach to suffrage. In 1903, Munns and O'Neill organized the Third Territorial Suffrage Convention. Women from all over the state attended it. And in 1903, they decided again, we're going to have um, at their suffrage convention, we are going to introduce a bill that will give us that constitutional amendment that we've been working for so hard. Because Munns and O'Neill began playing partisan politics, the political makeup of Arizona is important to note. They made a play to the Democratic Party because they made up two-thirds of registered voters at the time. Arizona was considered a Democratic state. So when the state legislature was controlled by Democrats in 1903, there seemed like there was a bit of hope for suffrage support. Both the upper and the lower house passed it. But then Governor Brody, who was a federal appointee, uh, a Republican, said, no, this is unconstitutional. We can't have women voting, even though women were voting in other places by then. Wyoming and Utah and other places had granted women the right to vote. And he vetoed it. After the veto, Munns and O'Neill wanted the legislature to override the governor's veto. But representatives who supported them previously with their votes withheld their support. There weren't enough votes to override the veto. The defeat in Arizona put on hold the movement for a few years. The suffragists knew they'd have to wait until statehood to gain the right to vote. In 1909, the National Organization sent Laura Clay, 
a member of the national organization, to help revive the movement in Arizona with MUNS. To do so, they had to change their methods a bit. She decided that it was obvious that legislators were not going to pass this bill, so it was important that they appeal to the male voters and not the legislators. That if they could get enough support from the male um, voters in the, in, the, in the territory, they would they could put pressure on legislators. They reached out to mine workers and to members of the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ Church to garner support. They did this in various ways. They had big rallies to mobilize voters. They had speeches. They had national uh, organizers come in from all over the, the country, different states. Um, these organizers were professional speakers and they would hold rallies. Sometimes they just get a soapbox and stand on a corner of Bisbee or Globe and talk to the mine workers. Sometimes it was on the courthouse steps. While Clay and Munns revived the movement, it's important to note that it was not an inclusive movement. Their goal was to earn the right to vote for white women. They helped move along new legislation that would disenfranchise foreign-born voters. Clay, who came from Kansas, opposed giving African-American women the right to vote. Arizona had a very low African-American population at the time, but... There was a large population of Mexican-Americans, and Munns, um, Clay persuaded Munns and some other organizations to support legislation requiring an English literacy test in order to vote. By doing so, they would suppress the working-class Mexican-American, whom they thought would not understand their fight for suffrage. And that they would vote against it. So by having this literacy test in place, you could eliminate a lot of, a lot of those people. However, they did reach out to some of the upper-class Mexican-Americans, those who owned businesses and land. To understand how the literacy tests were used, I spoke with Katie Benton-Cohen, She's a professor of history at Georgetown University. She's also an Arizona native. I've written two books. The first is called Borderline Americans, Racial Division and Labor War in the Arizona Borderlands. And it's a history of race in southeastern Arizona, specifically a study of Cochise County. In it, she researched the impact of literacy tests. It was absolutely meant to be um, discriminatory and reduce Mexican voting. And in fact, it was very, very effective. We see um, in Cochise County, for example, in the first election after that in 1910, many precincts that had previously had many Mexican voters had none. Here's how the literacy test would work. At the registrar's office, the registrar would give the voter an excerpt of the U.S. Constitution to read. And if you could read it and understand it, then you'd pass the test. It was subjective, based on the registrar. Katie noted that it varied across the state. One of the things I argue in that book is that race relations between Anglos and Mexicans and Mexican-Americans varied significantly across Arizona, depending on factors like what the economy was, whether Mexican-Americans owned land, whether they intermarried with Anglo families. The use of literacy tests was all up to the registrar. The literacy tests in elections thereafter did take Mexican-Americans off the voting rolls, but not entirely. Also, as Heidi mentions in her book, the vast majority of Hispanic voters at the time 
were Republicans. Remember, Munz was making a play to the Democratic voters. So they thought as Republicans, Hispanic voters wouldn't support the suffrage movement. Then, in 1910, Arizona once again held a constitutional convention, this time with the permission from the federal government. As the state legislature worked to draft a constitution, Munn saw this as her opportunity to once again include the female vote in Arizona's constitution. She sent petitions and speakers to the constitutional convention, and in early November, she was allowed to speak before the elections committee, along with four other or three other prominent women representing women workers, representing doctors, lawyers, professional women in the state, and um, and Pauline O'Neill. Unfortunately, the constitutional delegates rejected the suffrage plank by a vote of 30 to 19. The suffrage plank was denied because of some of the same anti-suffrage ideology, that it would corrupt women, and that it was not their place. But they also believed if it was included in the state constitution, Congress would reject it. This wasn't the only measure Arizona had to take out of the Constitution. In order to become a state, they also removed provisions about the recall of judges and ballot initiatives. But as soon as Arizona officially became a state, the legislatures put back in those measures. So Munns decided, we are going to use this initiative and, and referenda because we know that we've sent women all around the state. We've been working so hard to convince male voters so she used the initiative to collect petitions to put suffrage on the ballot for the 1912 elections. An endorsement of women's suffrage by President Teddy Roosevelt helped gain even more support from working-class men. Women had been holding meetings in people's homes, churches, schools, and hotels. According to Heidi, they also ran a successful newspaper campaign by writing in editorials. They also capitalized on the year's biggest event, the State Fair. 1912 was our first State Fair. It had always been the Territorial Fair. It was the first State Fair downtown Phoenix. People came from all over the state. People came from the rural areas as well. Farmers and ranchers came to show off their cattle, goats, and even their pumpkins. Heidi said it was a big deal back then to go to the state fair. And the women with the suffrage movement had a nice uh, booth at the fairgrounds, and they handed out over 20,000 leaflets and badges and buttonholed every voter that came by the, the booth. And they sent, they hired young boys to go out to the train stations and hand out leaflets as people came and went from the train stations. When Election Day finally came around, Munns organized women to set up outside the polls to hand out flyers. And basically the handout said, um, those who obey the law should have a say in their making. Those who pay taxes to support government should be represented in government. Those who have charge of the home and children must be able to protect them. And then remember that Arizona women have worked as hard as men to build up this state and territory. Heidi said they had no idea what the results would be. It's not like now where they do opinion polls or exit polls. Munns went home that night, not knowing the results. In Heidi's book, she said she woke up the next morning at 10 a.m. and headed to the local paper 
with Pauline O'Neill to see the results. When the returns came in and that 68% of the voters, every single county in the state went for suffrage. They gave them the majority of the suffrage. It blew people away, especially the leaders back east in New York of the national suffrage movement who thought for sure it was gonna fail. Arizona became the eighth state to give women the right to vote. It would be another eight years until Congress ratified the 19th Amendment. The women celebrated, but they didn't stop there. Now with the right to vote, Munns turned her head to the state capitol. She thought it was very important for women to run for office. This was not universally held in the United States. Most male politicians hoped women would just be voters, vote men in to take care of things like they always had. There wasn't a great effort to get women to run for office themselves. In 1914, she became Arizona's first female state senator. She represented Yavapai County. She was only the second female state senator in the country. Munza's introduction changed the culture of the chambers. Heidi mentioned that in those days, men were smoking and swearing in the chamber. But with a woman there, they had to adjust. Munz also had a young daughter she looked after while she was governing. Heidi explained how she handled doing that. Her youngest daughter, Mary Frances, was in grade school. And because she had to keep an eye on her, she came down from Prescott and put Mary Frances in school here in Phoenix. After school, Mary Frances would come to the state Senate and sit by her mother's desk and do her homework. Munns and her fellow suffragists made moves to make their voices heard through the polls and in legislation. Although all women in Arizona receive the right to vote, remember those literacy tests I mentioned before? The ones that were enacted in Arizona in 1909? Well, those stayed in place, and they continue to disenfranchise women of color from voting. I want to explore this chapter of the suffrage movement in more depth now. But the literacy tests weren't the only hindrance to voting at the time. Indigenous people were not considered citizens when Arizona, or the U.S., extended the right to vote to women. In fact, Indigenous people were not considered citizens until 1924, with the passage of the Indian Citizen Act. I spoke with Catherine Osborne, an associate history professor of Arizona State University. She has extensively researched Indigenous history. I think the first thing you need to understand when you're talking about um, Indigenous voting rights is that Indigenous voting rights are shaped by their dual citizenship in tribal nations and in America. The U.S. Constitution excluded them from citizenship because they were not taxed on their land. Uh, other reasons why people denied uh, Indigenous people full citizenships and rights uh, had to do with the fact that they were just plain prejudice against their, their culture. There were Native individuals who could vote, but that would mean they lived off the reservation and often renounced their tribe. In 1918, when the U.S. joined World War I, many Native soldiers shipped off to Europe. Their service in the war pushed Congress to give Indigenous people citizenship. However, Catherine said there were more motivations behind that. 
But remember, this wasn't just about rewarding them for participation, but it was a, a yet another attempt to assimilate them, to bring them into American culture um, and, and, and make sure that they were uh, participants uh, in, in non-Indigenous politics. Catherine also said that the communities were divided on the issue of voting. Some wanted the right to vote, others were focused on their own issues in their tribal government. That said, um, <laughs> just granting Indians the right to vote in 1924 did not mean that they voted because the conditions to vote are set by the states. And so it went to each state to uh, enfranchise Indians once the, the blanket law had been passed at the federal uh, level. Arizona was one of those states that barred Native Americans from voting for many years after 1924. In fact, the Arizona Constitution, and I can quote this one, Article 7, Section 2, states, quote, No person under guardianship, non compass mentis, or insane shall be qualified to vote in any election. And so um, Arizona policymakers looked at under guardianship and said, well, Indians are uh, supposedly wards of the federal government, according to federal law. And so that means they're under guardianship and they can't vote. In the court case Porter v. Hall, the Arizona Supreme Court upheld this ideology in 1928. It wasn't until after World War II that the decision would be contested by indigenous veterans. In 1948, on the grounds that the guardianship clause of the Arizona Constitution violated the 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, all right, so they won the legal right to vote, and there were, there were activists and lawyers who pushed for that. Uh, but again, uh, there were many barriers to their, to their voting here in Arizona, and those held pretty much until uh, after the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 ended the legality of literacy tests, and they continued to disenfranchise women of color from voting. While women were given the right to vote in 1912, the right was primarily reserved for white women. As we grapple with our complex history, how should we remember these women? Women who pushed back against the status quo, but allowed for discriminatory voting laws. Heidi said that Arizona suffragists were flawed women. But they were also very progressive for their time in that they had been told their whole lives that you are only a woman. You should not have the right to sit on a jury. You, you should make less money to do for the same job as a man, should be barred from many different occupations. And they were irate about that. And they put up a fight. Melanie, along with Arizona Women's History Alliance, is working to place a statue of Frances Willard Munns in the Arizona State Capitol Mall. According to the Smithsonian American Art Museum's Art Inventories Catalog, less than 8% of all statues in the United States are of women. Melanie sees a Frances Munn statue as educational for Arizonans to learn her history. Of, of what women can do, this the strategizing, the coalition building, they facing seemingly insurmountable obstacles and, and going forward and, and doing this. And we wanted people to know that, hey, we got the vote in 1912. So Melanie got to work, passing a bill through the legislature to get permission and approval of the statue. 
I went to every hearing and um, I was delighted at the numbers of legislators that were so excited that we were going to have a statue of Francis Willard Munns on there, a male and female legislators who really spoke up in favor of this. And so it basically passed both houses with no opposing votes, which I was really excited about. Governor Doug Ducey signed the bill on April 23rd, 2019. Now, the organization has two years to fundraise for her statue. The organization hired Stephanie Hunter, a local sculptor, to create a model for them. The statue will be of Munn standing with a flag behind her, representing all of the women who worked with her to fight for suffrage. In her left hand, she has the flyer they handed out on election day. And she's walking past a ballot box from 1912 that says 1912 on it that shows you that we got the vote. And she's sort of she's she's not just standing there. She's walking into the future because what she said to us was um, she's she didn't stop when they got it. So far, the organization has raised forty eight thousand dollars with a goal of two hundred seventy five thousand dollars. The coronavirus pandemic has impacted their efforts because they had to cancel all of their fundraising events they had planned for the year. Yes, COVID-19 has has stopped our efforts basically in their tracks. And every time I get discouraged, I think, hey, this is a statue of Frances Willard Munns. Did she give up? No. (laughs) So if the statue gets the necessary funds, it would be placed at the entrance of Wesley Boland Plaza, facing the legislature building. Melanie hopes that the statue would leave people with this thought. Frances Munns would tell anyone, um, you are, your vote counts. Don't ever say it doesn't count. Um, look what we got because people went out and voted. So I just say to anybody that's thinking, well, my vote's not going to make a difference. No, it does. <laughs> It definitely does. And that's, as I said, part of what we would like that statue to say to people is your vote counts. Don't ever think it doesn't. Um, Makes a big difference. Hey, listeners, it's me, Kayla, again. Maritza, what a great story to bring us during the centennial of the 19th Amendment. What was your favorite part about researching this episode? I really liked hearing how these women didn't take no for an answer. They spent more than a decade fighting for suffrage. They weren't considered ladylike for their lobbying, but they definitely paved the way for female politicians. Absolutely. Well, listeners, if you have more questions about Metro Phoenix and its history or its future, submit them to us at valley101.azcentral.com. And if you're a regular listener of our show, please consider supporting it by subscribing to azcentral.com. We know there's a lot of uncertainty these days, but something as simple as a digital subscription can help ensure our ability to bring you these stories week after week. And as always, thank you for listening to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. See you next week.